0: Once said, what a man is on his knees knees before God, that he is and nothing uh, more. That was by a Scottish preacher, Robert Murray uh, McShane. Uh, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Uh, We are human beings coming before a great a mighty God. As we saw uh, this morning from uh, this chapter, we are utterly dependent upon our God to answer prayer. Um, And as we'll see uh, again this evening, we see uh, in these few verses Elijah on his knees uh, before the Lord. And we'll learn uh, four more uh, lessons for our prayers Um, as we look at these uh, few verses. Um, As you may recall from this morning, um, uh, the situation for Israel is that they're in a time of drought. Um, This chapter is kind of bookended by um, the thought that rain is going to come, uh, and rain coming again. Um, So if you have a look... um, there in verse 1, we see this. Uh, After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, the king, Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Elijah hears from God that rain is going to come uh, again on the land. His judgment is coming towards an end. Um, but first, God's people need to see something. They need to see that he truly is God and they need to bow down and worship him uh, and not Baal, not other gods. They, there's something more important than their physical needs. It's their spiritual needs. Their need to be worshipping uh, the Lord. And so we saw this morning that contest, that uh, kind of God contest. Who is the real God, who is the God who answers by fire? And we saw uh, that it is the Lord Almighty who rains down fire from heaven in direct contrast with Baal, who does not hear, who does not answer people's cries, who is totally uh, powerless. But there's still no rain. God, answering by fire, has not solved the problem of no rain. In fact, it probably makes it worse, really, um, fire um, in a land that's suffering a a drought. Uh, The sky is still scorching. The ground is still dry. Um, or as um, Moses prophesied, uh, spoke um, to God's people in Deuteronomy, the sky over your head will be bronze and the ground beneath you iron, a warning that if they turn to uh, other gods, a drought would come. The sky like bronze, the ground beneath like iron. God was doing what his word said, if people turn to other gods. Uh, But it it could be easy for us to think, as we've been looking at this passage today, that Elijah's kind of in charge uh, in this chapter. Uh, It's him who organizes everything to do with the the, uh, contest. He sets up the altar. Uh, He does things. Uh, But we mustn't take our eyes off. It's really God. It's really God who answers prayer. It's only God who could have answered by fire. Uh, and we see now that it's only God who can answer uh, Elijah's prayer for rain. It's only God who could send rain, who can control uh, the weather. Uh, it's not Elijah. Elijah is just on his knees before the Lord. So, verse 42, um, so Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face uh, between his knees he is bowing down before god praying that god will remove judgment on the land but there is no uh nothing there that tells us he's praying um but we have a little commentary uh on this um part of god's word if you turn to james chapter 5 verse 17 and 18 uh, we read this very helpful thing um, about Elijah praying here. James 5, 17 uh, to 18. We might want to put a finger in 1 Kings 18 uh, so we can go back there. It says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, but it did, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. We get a real uh, insight here into what's going on in 1 Kings uh, 18.42. Elijah is praying earnestly to God that it would rain again. Uh, And God indeed, as we'll see, does send uh, rain. So we are going to learn four more things from Elijah as he prays. Uh, And the first is uh, a praying posture. Um, A praying posture. Uh, Elijah, it says, is on his knees before the Lord. He bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees. He's in a praying posture. Uh, He recognizes that he's a human being coming uh, towards uh, the Lord. Uh, And he's showing that just uh, in the way he uh, is praying. And though we are not told or commanded anywhere in particular a posture of praying, um, we can pray sitting, we can pray standing, we can pray walking, uh, kneeling. Uh, It is helpful to note the posture that Elijah comes. Helpful to note because he is ba- it's like he's bowing down before uh, the Lord Almighty. He is the king. He is the sovereign one. Only he can send the rain. He comes as a, a creature, helpless, coming before his creator. The one who governs all things. The one who can answer by fire, as we have seen. The Lord who rules and reigns. And so he bows his knees towards the Sovereign Lord Almighty, saying, please do something only you can do and make it rain. Send this rain that you have promised. So even if we don't ourselves fall on our knees physically before the Lord, uh, in our praying, it's important that we remember who we pray to. We're not uh, trying to get, bend God to our own wills, not trying to come before him and saying, God, I want this, I want that. Although I think, uh, I know that I can sometimes come like that and forget that I'm coming to the Lord Almighty. We need to remember who we are coming to, the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, God, the Lord. Praying for things that only he can do. Praying that he will turn people's hearts to him. Praying his kingdom will come. Submit to his will. And maybe it could be helpful for some of us, maybe at some point this week, if we're able to, maybe just helpful to pray on your knees before the Lord. Uh, Just to think, this is what I'm doing. I'm coming as a humble servant before the Lord. My king. A very kind of tangible, clear way for us to see uh, what we are doing as we come to the king in prayer. Um, lesson number one praying posture. Less, lesson number two uh, praying promises. Um, they're all beginning with P. Um, praying promises. Um, Elijah is sure that rain is coming. Uh, he, he says that with great certainty in verse 41. Uh, and Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. But as, as he sends his servant off, there's, there's no sign of rain. But, but Elijah is sure that it's coming because he's heard from the Lord uh, at the beginning uh, of chapter 18. And so he's praying, that would happen, he's praying, reminding, almost like reminding God, not that God needs reminding, but saying, you have said this, please do it, Lord. Taking his promise and pr- turning it into prayer. Um, it's like, like when someone asking, uh, like when you know someone who maybe said, oh, well, um, if you ever want this doing... Uh, Just let me know. And you come to them and you say, you know when you said that. No, I forgot about that. Um, uh, I recently had the joy of uh, asking a friend of mine to bake a wedding cake. He's very into baking. And I remember him baking a wedding cake for some people a couple of years ago. And I said, you remember when you baked that wedding cake? Do do you think you could bake one uh, for us? The answer was a yes. Yes, sorry for leaving you in suspense. (laughs) And God wants to hear from us like that, praying the promises of Scripture, praying to God, you you know you said this. Well, well, please do this. Uh, A few promises of Scripture I was thinking of. in, In Habakkuk it says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." And then Jesus, and I think these are connected, uh, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray your kingdom come. Uh, surely, as we ask God that his kingdom would come, it's asking him that he would fulfill this promise in Habakkuk, may the earth be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or as some of us were praying on Friday, uh, the Reminding ourselves of uh, Matthew 9, 38, where Jesus says, Ask the Lord uh, of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest field. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are are few. So we ask him, we say, you have said this, and we we ask for it, Lord. Or at the end of Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, and God's people pray, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Uh, We still pray that. He has promised and we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. As we pray that word of God back to him, he uses our prayers to fulfill his purposes in his promises. It's exciting to think that prayers uh, which we can offer up even uh, this evening, God may use, be using to fulfill his promises to fulfill his purposes here in Brighton and Hove and and beyond around the world. That's really exciting. So surely as as Elijah prays uh, for this, reminds God, you've said you're going to bring rain, so please bring rain. Surely it's going to be like the fire and God answers straight away. Well, no, not not exactly, as I'm sure you know. Verse 43, um, Elijah says to his servant, go and look towards the sea. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. And not until the seventh time, the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Uh, Lesson number three, Praying persistently. Sometimes God will answer our prayers. And we've seen that uh, in this passage. More or less straight away. But here Elijah must have agonized with prayer. You've just told me God. That you'd send rain. But there is no rain. So please send it. Seven times later. There's a sign of the rain coming. As he sees that cloud. Just a small cloud. But it's the beginning of the answer. Why does it say take seven trip, tri- trips? Why doesn't God just do it? But Elijah is praying in accordance with God's promises. Knowing that it, this is, seems to be God's will. But God seems to just take his time. He seems to be slow. But God is not slow as we would understand it, uh, the Bible says. I think many of us would love it if God was kind of like Amazon, where we order our thing and it comes the next day. Uh, And sometimes God is like that. Uh, We've seen recently, uh, Mark and I were praying that new people would come to see why, and two days later, they had over double the numbers. Praise God for that. But other times, he'll make us wait. More often than not, it seems. Sometimes we may have to agonize uh, with him in prayer, it feels like. Why won't he answer? And we may not ever really know. But we hold on to his promises and uh, we hold on to uh, his word, what we know about him here, that he does hear, he does answer our prayers. He, we don't have A God who doesn't hear, who doesn't answer like Baal. He does hear. He does answer. We are merely servants bowing before the king. We're not gods. And as Elijah keeps coming seven times, keeps praying persistently, he is demonstrating where his faith is. He knows it can only be God who can answer this prayer. Only gods can move the heavens to send fire, to send rain, to change things to act. And we need to hold on to that as a church. It struck me as we were uh, meeting on Monday evening over Zoom. Uh, for, was it seven years, you've been praying about this building to, to become yours. Like, that's a long time. Elijah just prays seven times. That's seven years of praying persistently. People in this church and the building is now owned by us and we've been able to do things with it and it's good. Another example is praying for future ministry. I know you've been praying for some years for that and God seems to be beginning to answer that in, in very strange ways. But God seems to be beginning to answer that. But we keep praying. As we've been reminding ourselves the last few weeks, we pray for a team of elders, not just one elder. We keep praying for that. We persist in our prayers. Persevere in our prayers, knowing there must be a good reason for the delay and God will act at just the right time. In the Old Testament, there were promises of a Messiah to come. And it must have just seemed like But why is he not coming now? Why do we have to wait so long? And yet the Bible assures us that just the right time Jesus came. At just the right time Jesus died. God is faithful. He does hear and he does answer our prayers. Uh, And finally, um, prayers power. This might be a slight stretch, but uh, bear with um, uh, through these chapters with Elijah, um, we see King Ahab, who has led the people away from the Lord through his marriage and um, to Jezebel, and Jezebel bringing in Baal and other foreign gods. Um, but now God uh, and God was sending that judgment of the drought for three and a half years. But but now God was was relenting in his judgment through uh, the power of prayer, through his servant Elijah. Elijah, remember, he's just a human being like us. Um, And the answer, um, what God does comes in remarkable ways. Uh, So verse 44, as we've seen already, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Rain is coming. God is answering. So Elijah says, said, go and tell uh, Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before uh, the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rainstorm came on, and Ahab rose off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, tucking his cloak into his belt. He ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So he goes to speak to Ahab. He tells him, The rain is coming. You might want to get your chariot and get off um, quickly before the rain stops you. Uh, and as that happens, uh, the hand of the Lord, uh, who has been answering the prayers for rain, is on Elijah. Uh, and we see this very strange thing, really. The power of the Lord came on Elijah. And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab. Ahab was on a chariot. Elijah's running ahead. Um, It's amazing. It seems like a complete miracle. Because it is. Because the power of the Lord is on him. And we pray to a God who is powerful, who can answer in the most completely ridiculously amazing way. The prophet through whom God's word was spoken, through whom prayer was answered. uh, God was having his hand on him. Uh, And I think the the idea, as I've been reading a few commentators on this, because I've got no idea what it's about really. um, But the idea is that King Ahab should should, uh, be a king who is following the Lord. And so as he sees the prophet of the Lord who who speaks God's word, he he should see, that's what I'm meant to be doing. I'm meant to be following God's words. Remember Elijah's question to uh, the people uh, in verse 21. Uh, As Elijah went before the people, he said, how long will you waver or limp between two opinions, if the Lord is God, follow Him, but if Baal is God, follow Him." He's kind of saying to Ahab, "Will you follow me?" And we know as we read on, uh, he doesn't. Uh, and the question uh, we've been asking ourselves is today is, are we following the Lord, and if we are, are we turning to Him in prayer, as Elijah does time and time again in these chapters? Are we looking to Him, the Lord who answers prayer? Will we continue to do that? We have done this week. Will we continue to do that through the rest of this year and beyond? Knowing that God does hear, knowing that He does answer. Remember our posture in prayer. We're coming to the Lord Almighty. Uh, We come on our knees before Him. Uh, Remember. Uh, the promises. Pray the promises uh, to to God. Remember, we need to pray persistently. More often than not, we need to pray persistently. Keep trusting. Keep holding on to the Lord, and know that He will, He is, and He will work. And know that He is powerful. We're gonna pray together. Um, We're going to pray together now. Uh, I'll lead us in a prayer and we'll sing uh, and then we'll we'll pen. Uh, We're looking at verses 22 to 42 that David uh, kindly read for us, John chapter 10. Um, Over this last couple of weeks, I've discovered uh, this. Uh, It's a a new piece of very, very clever technology. Uh, It's called Chat GPT. Um, And it's a piece of artificial intelligence, uh, which sounds very clever, doesn't it? Um, And apparently, um, and I've tried this out, you can have uh, a conversation with it. You can ask it any question in the world, and it will know the answer. You can ask it to do very clever things, like uh, write me a song. Uh, And it can write you a song about anything that you ask it to write a song about. Uh, It can write you an essay it can even write a sermon, and I've tried it, and I'm not going to preach uh, the sermon that it suggested, but it, it can write a sermon, which would, which would work. Um, it's terrifyingly clever, uh, and I was reading uh, a few articles this week about it, and it's been labelled a disruption. Um, it could bring down Google in the next couple of years, apparently, uh, would you believe Um, It's been labelled a disruption. Uh, It could change many jobs, it could change the way people study. um, It could change all sorts of things. But apparently, other things have been labelled a disruption that we just consider a normal part of our lives now. Um, Spotify was labelled a disruption to the music industry. How would people ever really make money properly through music again? Uh, And now it's something we live with. It's something that I would struggle to live without. Um, Uber, you can order a taxi on your phone. Um, That was labeled a disruption and now is a, a normal part of many people's lives. Netflix, a disruption to the film industry. Airbnb, a disruption to the hotel industry. Some of us will think... Yes, this stuff is great. We love them. Others of us maybe think, yeah, I wish, I wish these things weren't around, actually. They are a bit of a disruption. Some of us will love them. Some of us won't. But then as I was looking at this passage, I was thinking perhaps that the greatest kind of disruptor in history is the Lord Jesus. God, come to earth to live, to die, to rise again. Uh, he has changed the course of history. And there are people in this passage who view him simply as a disruption that we've got to get out the way, a threat to their lives, rather than the saviour that he can be, the one who came to give life, and as we've been looking in John's gospel over these last few uh, months, uh, as we've been in particularly chapters 5 to 10, I think, we've been seeing uh, as Jesus cl- makes more and more claims to, to be uh, God, we've been seeing this conflict between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. Jesus who says clearly that he is God. Uh, and these Jewish leaders who, ju- who want him out the way and dead, a disruption to their lives. Uh, and you know what? In the past, the Jewish religion has, a, has, has a, had other disruptions. I'll tell you about this guy briefly, a brief history lesson. Um, this guy is called Antiochus Epiphanes. About 200 years before um, this uh, event that we've read in John chapter 10, um, he ruled the Syrian empire. And he wanted to establish an empire-wide religion, to, to make things simple. Uh, and as part of that, part of his empire was Jerusalem. And so he went to Jerusalem and um, he went into the temple uh, and he sacrificed a pig And that was a big no-no in the Jewish religion. Pigs are seen as unclean, dirty animals. How dare you sacrifice a pig in the temple? He was seen as a great disruptor to the Jewish religion. But then this guy came along. He's called Judas Maccabeus. And he led kind of revolt against this. Um, He went back to the temple and claimed it to the rightful worship of the Lord. And I tell you this because in verse 22 we read this, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. And it was the time when they celebrated Judas Maccabeus coming in and restoring right order in the temple Of God. And it's celebrated even today. It's uh, more more widely known as Hanukkah. Uh, And it's celebrated with lots of lights and the giving of gifts as they celebrate this hero, Judas Maccabeus. But as we arrive at this festival in John chapter 10, we see someone who comes as an even greater hero, the hero we all need, the one who comes to fulfill the temple. Uh, He said earlier in John's gospel, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's talking about himself. He has come to bring people to God. And yet in this chapter he's seen more of a by the Jewish leaders as more of a disruption than a saviour, than a hero. And that is because uh, these Jewish leaders he he speaks to and interacts with, they they do not believe. There is much unbelief going on uh, in this uh, little passage. Three times we get Jesus saying those who do not believe. So in verse 25, I did tell you, but you do not believe. Verse 26, but you do not believe. Verse 37, do not believe in me unless there is unbelief going on uh, with these people that Jesus speaks to. Uh, I was thinking uh, about their unbelief and I was thinking uh, uh, how crazy it is that Jesus stands there and he says that he is God and they just can't see it. And I was thinking about it a bit like this. Um, Hopefully this is of some help to us um, as we try and understand this passage together. Um, Without these glasses, I cannot see very well. I cannot see anything that's written in front of me. But with the glasses on, I can see very well. And every few years, I, like some of you, uh, will go to the optician and they'll, um, I'll have my eyes looked at again and they'll uh, put various lenses and some of them you can't see anything at all and then eventually you get a pair of glasses that you can see clearly again through. And it's very, very helpful. Uh, but these Jewish leaders who are with Jesus spiritually, they do not see him clearly, even though he's standing in front of them. Even though I might have the Bible in front of me, I cannot read it unless I have these glasses to see. It's not plain to them who Jesus is. And they say this in verse 24. The Jews who were gathered round him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Just tell us already if you are the Messiah or not. Their patience is running out. Why won't he just tell us? And yet Jesus says, Jesus who's standing in front of them, Jesus says, I did tell you, verse 25, I did tell you, but you do not believe. He may not have ever said, I am the Messiah directly, but he said enough that they should see as Jewish people with all their knowledge uh, of, of God, of all their knowledge of the scriptures, they should see that he is God. And they certainly have seen that enough, that they would stone Jesus. Uh, have a look, um, just uh, to help us uh, get, get a bit more uh, context. Chapter 5, verse 18, we see this. Uh, for, um, in fact, I'll start at verse Uh, verse 17 in his defense jesus said to them my father is always at his work to this very day and i too am working for this reason they tried all the more to kill him not only was he breaking the sabbath but he was even calling himself uh, calling god his own father and making himself equal with god they're trying to kill him they want to kill him They see that what he says is blasphemous, that he's making himself equal with God. He's telling them plainly, so plainly that they want him dead. They refuse to believe. And then chapter 8, verse 58. um, We see it again. Chapter 8, verse 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered... Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is saying he's, I am, the great I am. He is God. He is eternal. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. They want him dead. He's been very, very clear about who he is. But they just won't believe it. They think it's blasphemy. It's like an optician giving me these glasses and I throw them off and say, no, I won't have them, even though I can see perfectly well through them. Even though they can see in many ways that what Jesus is saying, yet they do not come to believe truly who he is. They do not come and say, yes, you're right in what you say. You are God." No, they stone him and they want him dead. They're in a place of unbelief. He's told them plainly already. He says that. And this morning as we look at this passage again, we're going to be confronted again with who Jesus is. Confronted again with who they think is a disruption to them. And we'll see again that they want to kill him. They want to stone him. They want to seize him, take him away, kill him, want him dead. And this morning as we do that, let's think, who do we see Jesus as? Do we see him as God? Do we see him as our Savior? Or do we see him merely as a disruption to our lives that we just would rather be out the way? We're going to see uh, kind of two halves of this passage. We're going to uh, begin uh, firstly thinking about those who do believe. Those who do believe uh, in Jesus. Uh, Last time we were in John chapter 10, we saw a great statement of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. Uh, And here we kind of see that shepherd and sheep imagery uh, come through Again, as uh, Jesus describes those who do believe. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. They do not believe because they are not his sheep. But those who are his sheep, what are they like? Well, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. That's the first thing we... They listen to his voice. They hear his voice. I was thinking about people who listen uh, to uh, voices, and uh, to bring it right up today, I was thinking of um, Alexas. They listen to our voices, they're always ready to hear our words and respond to us. Um, Alexas, or other smart speakers, I'm sure, are available. Uh, they will listen to your voice and they'll respond. Those who are Jesus' sheep, we will listen to his voice. We will listen to his voice and, and love his voice and take him at his words. We sang a song uh, picking up on some of Jesus' words just now about how we can rest in him. Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They're glorious words of Jesus that we can listen to and respond to. We can find our rest in the Lord Jesus. If we are his sheep, we'll hear those words and we'll gladly listen and we'll gladly respond. Or as Jesus said in that previous chapter i'm the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep more precious words of the lord jesus words of life for those who will listen for those who are his sheep and we come today and the thing that is central uh, to what we do as a church is listen to the voice of our lord jesus to listen to his words we open his word because we love to listen to his voice and they're words that we can treasure words that we can love words that we can hold on to but these jewish unbelievers they're they're not treasuring the words of god they're not hearing and listening to his voice they're not taking what he says seriously instead they want him out the way he's a disruption and for those for all of us as we hear his voice this morning there was a time when we too had our ears kind of deafened to him where we wouldn't listen but praise God that he would open our ears and we would listen and we would respond praise God for that work Not only do his sheep listen, but um, they are known by him. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. We can be known by the Lord Jesus, by, by God himself. Not just listening, but he actually comes to us and he knows us. He even knows our deepest, darkest sin, and yet he still would come and know us, and love us, and save us, bring us into his sheepfolds. Make us his sheep. And yet, for these Jewish people who are uh, wanting to stone him, they aren't known by Jesus in the same way. They're not known as... True children, true sheep of God, they reject him. And he knows their hearts. He knows that they're unbelieving and that they're hardened to him. It's amazing, isn't it, that anyone would be known by Jesus at all. We all naturally have hardened hearts. We all naturally would want to throw stones at Jesus with these Jewish leaders. Naturally, we'd all view him just as a disruption that we want out the way and yet Jesus has mercy and he delights to know his people. It's a mystery, but one we can be thankful for that Jesus does know his sheep. And the next thing we see is that they follow him. They listen to his words. They are known by him. And they follow him. Follow his words. Follow his words when he says, take up your cross and follow me. It it might mean suffering with the Lord Jesus, but we know where it is going because he also gives us eternal life. That's what he continues to say. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. These are precious, precious promises to those of us who follow the Lord Jesus this morning. That he gives us eternal life. It's a precious, precious, precious gift. Um, Often precious gifts uh, might be particularly fragile gifts. Uh, You know when you get a package and it says handle with care? Maybe it's a precious vase that we're given or something like that. And if you dropped it, it would smash on the floor and it would be no more. You'd lose the gift. This gift that Jesus gives of eternal life is certainly precious. We should certainly not mess around with it. But the wonderful news is that it cannot be broken. It cannot be smashed to pieces on the floor because it says, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father Who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. It is a secure gift of eternal life that he gives his sheep. Why is it so secure? It's not because of us or what we have done. It's because we're safe in Jesus. We're safe in the Father, he says. My Father who has given me he's greater than all no one is greater than him and so no one can snatch them out of his hands maybe the, there's times when you fear losing your salvation fear you might do something and it would be like dropping a vase on the floor you can't fix it amend it just lose it that's not so with our salvation we are one of Jesus' sheep. We have eternal life that no one can take out of our hands. It's a wonderful verse that we as Christian people can hold on to and treasure. And this week, as we've we've heard of our sister Enid, who's gone to be with the Lord, I was thinking about her and how God has kept her and held her fast and she is now enjoying that precious gift of eternal life. She is safe with the Lord Jesus. God has held on to her throughout her life, not let her go. And now she gets to enjoy the rest of it. Safe in the presence of God. The good shepherd holds on to his sheep. No one can snatch them out of his hands. And what kind of holds this all together is verse 30: I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. This is a big thing. We're talking about the Trinity, about who God is: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. It's a big thing that holds us together, but it's an amazing thing. It's not that Jesus is just standing on his own and saying, oh yes, I hold them, and and the Father is up there holding them too, but they, they are one. One God in three persons, one being. This is God come down to earth, and he's saying these precious, wonderful things about those who are his sheep. But he says this in front of religious, very religious, very Jewish people. People who would have claimed to believe in God and yet hear God standing in front of them saying, I and the Father are one and they just hate it. They can't believe it. They can't believe that Jesus would come and say this. And so they throw sto- they're they prepared to pick up stones and throw them at him. Verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. They want him dead. They do not believe that he could possibly be God's, that these things could possibly be true for anyone. They see him as a disruption. And yet those of us that are his sheep, his followers, we see... No, he's not a disruption. He gives us eternal life. He is God's. We are held safe in God's hands. But no, not according to these Jewish people, these Jewish leaders, these opponents of Jesus. They want him out the way and dead. And so we move on to kind of those who who do not believe. Those who do not believe. Those who just see Jesus as this great disruptor and not this great saviour. He's shown them very, very clearly who he is. Shown them again. I and the Father are one, he says. But they refuse. They don't have the eyes to see who he is. So Jesus uh, moves on and speaks less about uh, what he says about himself to be true. He speaks more about his works, the things he does. If you're not going to believe the things I say, at least believe me because of what I do. That's what he's saying. Because he's done many things, many things that would show that he is God. We've looked at some of them in this this, uh, book of John. Like Who can open the eyes of the blind, but God alone. Who can turn water into wine, but God alone. Who can feed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fishes, but God alone. Who can walk on the water, but God alone. Jesus doesn't just say he is God, he shows he is God by his work. And Jesus said this in, in chapter 5 and verse 19. We would have looked at that, I guess, kind of last summer time. Chapter 5 and verse 19, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. I and the Father are one. What I do, I do because the Father would do them. Because I am God's. Because I am one with the Father. The works that he does shows that he is God's. But again, verse 39, they try to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Again, they won't believe what he says, nor in the works that he does. We've skipped over a few verses, a few important verses, but rather hard verses. Uh, Verse 34. Uh, Jesus, uh, in fact, verse 33, uh, we see... um, They say, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be gods. But Jesus answered them, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside... What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I am God's son. What on earth does that mean? What on earth is Jesus talking about when he says, if he called them gods, I've said you are gods. Uh, Who's he talking about? I've been spending time reading a few different commentaries on this, um, and this is where I've got to, and hopefully it makes some kind of sense, uh, but know that the real point Jesus is making it here is that he is the Son of God. So if you don't quite get what Jesus is saying, he, he is saying, I am God's Son, and you can't see it to these Jewish people. But, but let's, uh, let's work through it together and see if it can make some sort of sense. Um, I think uh, he is calling those who are God's, it's, it's words from Psalm 82, uh, they are those to whom the word of God came. And I think he's talking about Jewish people as a whole. Uh, they are people called and chosen out of all the world to be God's Uh, people back in the old testament Uh, they have received the words of the lord uh, to abraham to isaac to jacob the great promises Uh, they've received the law through the through moses they have the temple and and the sacrificial system they get to draw close to God. And so they're in a very privileged and special position. Uh, At the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, uh, we read that human beings, they're created in the image of God. All human beings uh, are created in the image of God, and that's a very special thing. But these uh, Jewish people, they have a particularly special place in the Old Testament as people to whom the word of God came, a unique and privileged position. And Jesus is saying, if your scriptures say this, and scripture cannot be set aside, it's God's word, it is true, and these people, these Jewish leaders, they love scripture, they believe it, they love it. Well, if it calls them gods, why then do you have a problem with me saying I am God's son? Why do you have a problem with that? That's the point he's making. I am God's son. Why do you have a problem with that if your your scriptures say this? I've come and I am God's son and I'm here and I'm amongst you and I've come and I give you I can offer you eternal life. The long-awaited Messiah is there in front of them. And he's been telling them plainly. But they want to stone him. They want to seize him. They want him out the way. He's a disruption to their lives. And they hear this, as we said earlier, at the time of the Festival of Dedication that time when the the jewish temple worship was uh, rededicated to god ra- rather than uh, to antiochus epiphanes and his regime of of worship and here jesus says that the father has set apart his very own and sent him into the world him He set him, dedicated him to be his son Uh, and his son has come to earth uh, and he's come to fulfill this this festival. He's come to fulfill the temple. He's come to bring them to God. God amongst them come to bring them to God. Uh, No longer will they have to come to a temple and make animal sacrifices. No, it's through Jesus. He is the great hero who has arrived amongst them. And yet they still see him as a disruption. It's possible that in all this passage that we've been looking at this morning, you might just be thinking, well, if Jesus knows they are not his sheep, Why doesn't he just open their blind eyes and make them see? It is true that salvation is God's work. But we do see in the Bible kind of the human responsibility side. He has told them who he is. He's said he's told them plainly. And they are without an excuse but they choose to not take his claim seriously, not to even consider for a moment, could this be true? And they want him out the way. They want to stone him. They want him dead. But there were people who saw. And we see that at the end of this little passage. Verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed. These Jewish leaders, they they don't come to believe in him here but there are others who come to see plainly who he is. They remembered the testimony of John the Baptist who spoke about the one who would come after him. And they see that this is Jesus, that he surely is the Messiah. God come to save. God come to bring people to him. And you know what? All of this is written with a purpose. All of John's gospel is written with a purpose. I want us to, um, just as we draw to a close, think about uh, John 20, 30 to 31. I've got, got it on the screen here. This is the purpose of John's gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in, these book, in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we see the unbelief of the Jewish leaders to who Jesus is, as we see Jesus declaring, I and the Father are one, we see that he gives his sheep eternal life he he can offer eternal life to those who do believe these are all written so that you may believe or, or keep on believing in jesus who is god come down to save And so we have two choices. We can either believe in him or keep on believing in him. Or do what these Jewish people do. And see him as just this great disruptor to their lives. And find any way they can to get rid of him. So today, will you come and believe in Jesus and find life in his name? Only he can do it. And if you do, you are so safe and secure in him, him who is God, that you can be held safely and securely in his hand. And what a wonderful and precious thing that is. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word and in your word we can see Jesus. And we do pray that you would help us for those of us who believe in him and know him and love him, help us to keep on believing in him, to know uh, more of that security that we have in him, that eternal life that we have in him. And Father, we pray for those who, would, who are not there yet. We pray that you'd help and have mercy, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.